You're on the front line. Everyone's watching. You know it's serious. We're getting closer. Oh, this is the Pressure's hard. You feel it. You got it all. Okay. Thanks, everyone, for joining. My name is Dr. Trish Ramprasad, or Trisha Ramprasad, the core behavioral therapist. And my guest today is pretty awesome. I have a psychologist um, with us based in New York City. Her name is Dr. Alexandra Straitner. Um, thanks for so much for coming. I'm gonna tell everyone a little bit about you. Her resume is pretty awesome. Her background is pretty great. Uh, she's a Manhattan-based psychologist who provides uh, tailored individual couples therapy and family and group therapy along with assessment services with her dad, Dr. Harris Straitner at Straitner & Associates. And together, the two are recognized for their individualized, compassionate and strength-based approach to helping individuals achieve psychological well-being. Dr. Straitner, she received her PhD in counseling psychology from Seton Hall University in New Jersey, and completed her internship in clinical psychology at Mount Sinai, St. Luke's, and Mount Sinai West Hospitals in New York. She has worked with individuals across the lifespan and in diverse range of settings, including and internationally, our very own Trinidad and Tobago, where my family is from, and Dr. Straitner, um, she's also an adjunct faculty member at New York University's Steinhardt School of Culture, Education, and Human Development, She's a core faculty member of Karen Treatment Center, New York Substance Use Disorder Education Program, and a supervisor in the departments of psychology and psychiatry at Mount Sinai Health Systems. She's also been on a bunch of news networks giving her expertise advice, and she served also, she worked at Cornell's Medical Center and, and Columbia University's Zuckerman Institute. So welcome. Thank you so much. Trish, it's great to be here. Great to have you. So we share a mutual friend, Alexandra. She, you grew up with someone who I grew up around. And I also knew his dad and um, he was very close to my dad. So that's how me and Alexandra met. And um, I'm really excited to have her because of her work she's done with uh, various individuals, as you just heard. So can you tell us about your background, what got you into psychology in the first place? Sure. Well, I think going all the way back, what got me into psychology is, is probably my father, who's also a psychologist, and, and we're fortunate to be able to work together now, which is very unique. There are actually a lot of psychologists that are father-daughter pairs, um, including some really famous uh, pairings. I mean, in psychoanalysis, they weren't psychologists, but you've got Sigmund and Anna Freud. Yeah. Um, in the world of cognitive therapy, the Becks are father and daughter. Um, but it's, it's very cool to be able to work with him. But he's really how I got started in the field, I guess I would say, because when I was a little girl, he was writing his dissertation. Um, and so, you know, there are stories told in my house about, it's funny because right now my husband is actually working on his own dissertation. He's down to the wire. So nice. um, it's like I'm living that experience again, but about my being a little girl and family friends would call up and say, um, 
hi, Alex, is, is, uh, is dad around to get dinner tonight? And I, as this little kid, would say, no, he's working on his dissertation. And then I would hang up the phone. <laughs> so I was exposed to it from a really early age. Um, and he would talk to me about psychology. And, and I think um, I just sort of naturally became interested in it. Um, I, as an undergraduate, studied psychology at Bryn Mawr College outside of Philadelphia in Pennsylvania. And then uh, from Bryn Mawr, uh, went on to do my master's and my PhD simultaneously at Seton Hall University, um, which is based in New Jersey. Yeah. Um, and the cool thing about psychology is you get to do so many different things. Over the course of your training, so I've worked at a lot of different places, um, but it's it's a a wonderful field because there's so many different things that you get to do, and I mean not to mention you know the ways in which you can have a really positive impact on people's lives. But I think it probably started with me as a little girl, you know, sitting in a diner on Saturday morning with Dad procrastinating his dissertation and telling me about what he was researching. That's so awesome. At a Jersey diner, I may add, probably. I probably would have been in Westchester, actually. Westchester, but New York, my bad. <laughs> I'm no. a little biased. <laughs> Grew up outside of the city, but I know those Jersey diners well. Uh, one, of the, one of the great joys of being based in New Jersey for a few years is the good diners. <laughs> yes, absolutely. This is so interesting um, that you followed in your dad's footsteps, but you kind of really didn't, uh, he didn't force you or anything. This is something you found mm -hmm. and his, his dissertation really influenced you. Do you remember what it was on or not really? Yeah, so he studied motivation for change in individuals who at the time were referred to as uh, mentally ill chemical abusers, which was abbreviated to MICA. And now we use a different term for that. We say individuals who have substance use and co-occurring disorders. Basically what that means is folks who have an addiction, but the addiction is really them self-medicating an underlying mental health concern like depression or anxiety or sometimes more severe mental illness. And we work a lot with folks who have substance use and co-occurring disorders in our practice in New York not solely. We also, I see a lot of folks who have no substance-related concerns. And I also see a lot of family members of people who have substance-related concerns. So, um, yeah, so yeah. he was um, really one of the first folks to kind of talk about an approach to the treatment of substance use that, that treated it as a disease and approached it psychologically. You know, there were these kind of old school approaches in the past that were very moralistic. Right. And I'm proud to be his daughter because his, his work really was about, this is actually somebody who is in tremendous pain, struggling with something that they're not getting adequate assistance with. And so they're doing the best that they can to cope and the way that they're coping is ineffective, but, but they're using substances to cope. So we have to look at it as a disease and we have to look at this as someone who's hurting, not a bad person. That's so interesting. It's so good and that's so important that someone who is struggling, they're not a bad person. That's so interesting. Um, thanks for that. And 
I'm so interested with COVID and everything that's happened, right? I'm sure you're aware depression, anxiety, everything was on the rise, domestic violence, um, child abuse. It, it was all on the rise because people were home. Can you talk to us? About, and also, I do know that you worked with um, children with disabilities in Trinidad and Tobago as well. Can you talk to us a bit about all of that, um, your work, and what you've seen? Because you've worked with the Indo, well, the Trinidadian, the Caribbean community, the Trinidadian community. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, except in sort of anecdotal instances, I, I haven't, I haven't been working in in Trinidad or working with. Um, Trini folks uh, in a few years now, um, but when I was a grad student, I had this really wonderful opportunity to work abroad through my program, um, and so um, on two different occasions, I was able to travel to Trinidad, and the first one over a two-week period was running uh, or assisting with running uh, a therapeutic day camp for kids and young adults who have what we call pervasive developmental disabilities. Also, some individuals with physical disabilities. So these were folks who had things like autism spectrum disorders, cerebral palsy, Down syndrome. Um, and so we, through um, a school called the Immortel School, um, which if I'm remembering correctly, although you may want to double check me on this, I think was based in St. Anne's, I want to say, had a two-week camp and we helped develop uh, therapeutic programming for the kids, teens, and young adults, um, and then also did neuropsychological assessment to help some of these kids uh, become qualified for accommodations. Um, in, in different kinds of educational settings and, and help their families access some additional supports. Um, it is a really wonderful opportunity. I, I feel so grateful, I have to say, I feel so immensely privileged to have been able to work in Trinidad. It, it, it was, I think, probably one of the defining experiences of my life in many ways. So, so oh, we cool. have- that's so awesome. Yeah. <laughs> We helped with this camp and then the following winter I went back for a shorter period of time um, to an organization called the Cotton Tree Foundation um, which uh, provides after-school supports for kids who have learning disabilities so a little bit different from the folks that I was working with at the camp um, these would be kids who might have things like reading disabilities, math disabilities, what we used to call dyslexia, dyscalculia, or maybe perhaps um, ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Um, and we did uh, different kinds of neuropsychological and educational assessments to make sure, again, that, that they had access to accommodations and also met with their families. And again, a really wonderful experience. I feel so grateful. Um, That's so awesome. That's so awesome. And I just want to preface by saying um, I'm a therapist too, and this is in no way me bringing on a white woman or a white therapist 
to tell us or the Caribbean community on how to be or anything like that. I invited um, Dr. Straightener because she's an additional support and a wealth of information and I'm really grateful for her. You said it was a pretty much a defining uh, moment in your life to work in Trinidad and Tobago. Can you say more of that? What did you like so much? The culture, the people, um, how they treated you? I mean, honestly, I just, everything that you just said, <laughs> I think Trinidad is just an incredible place. Um, it has such a warm spot in my heart. I also, I want to say really appreciate what you said. Um, I think it's really important when, when talking about mental health, to be clear, you know, I do a lot of work in a, in a particular um, kind of treatment modality called motivational interviewing. And motivational interviewing really emphasizes um, that the patient or the client is the expert on their own life. Yes. And that is something that I really abide by. And as, as someone who strives to practice in a way that's characterized by multicultural humility, um, by which I mean, I, I'm not an expert. I'm not an authority on, um, you know, the lived experiences that other people have. I do know about psychology. Um, yeah. I, I really feel grateful because I think every day, no matter who I'm working with, I'm sitting down with someone who um, is sharing aspects of their life with me, sharing aspects of their culture with me. Um, and really has has expertise on things that I don't. So I always sort of think of it as we have two experts in the room. Anytime I at least anytime I sit down with someone. Um, and so I think it's it's really important to note that, that you know although certainly you and I both have you know training in psychology and we can offer sort of psychological models and and applications of psychology for addressing some really complex problems. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not living in the experiences of or walking in the shoes of, of folks in Trinidad. Um, but, uh, but I, I certainly learned a lot from being there. Um, I just, it's, I find myself at a loss for words. I was just so, um, I was so honored when I was there. Um, I mean, certainly working with the kids and the young people that I worked with was, just such a, a really powerful, wonderful experience. And it, I, so specifically when I was working at the camp for adults with developmental disabilities or for people with developmental disabilities, I specifically worked with the young adult group and it was a, a really wonderful experience getting to meet these, these young adults and kind of talk to them about life and, you know, the things that, that they were going through. Um, and find ways to help them navigate the challenges of adulthood with a developmental disability, but also, you know, talking to their teachers at the school and their counselors and their family members about, well, what were the things that these young people were going to be experiencing in Trinidad? Um, and so I felt really, you know, let in and um, not to mention I, I had, my fair share of doubles so that oh. was <laughs> <laughs> i talked about doubles in my last that's also my last interview tell me what tell us what you thought about the you, oh you, my you God. did awesome work but let's talk yeah. about what you the food the doubles 
Incredible, incredible. And one night we, I remember being there, we went to, um, we went to see a, a pan rehearsal. Um, Cause I think we were there. We were there over, was it over winter or was it? I'm forgetting right now. I think it was over the summer, but the, the bands were still rehearsing. Okay. Um, and so it was it just incredible. Um, I just, just like a wonderful place. I felt so welcomed. Um, and sure, that has one of, most of like one of the is a place where there's so many kind people and um, they're just so friendly and will just start talking to you, like even if you're a stranger. Absolutely. That was yeah. my experience, yeah. It is wonderful. Um, and it's, it's also really cool to see, I think as someone who at the time was studying to be a psychologist, it's really cool to see the, the ways in which you can take what you've learned, right? how it looks in a different culture. Because honestly, so much of psychology is, and this is changing, I hope. I mean, I think we're talking more about kind of like you know, models that take into account decolonization. In fact, I'm just about to assign a reading to students I have at NYU that um, looks at the application of, a, of a, a program to an indigenous population in Canada. And they talk about taking this kind of like decolonizing approach to program evaluation. So I think we're doing a better job of that. That's but, awesome. That, uh, that needs to be talked about. That's so awesome. Yeah, but yeah. it's, you know, so many of these theories are kind of they're they're very western either american or european and i think you think about you know you think about a very very young country that was a british colony right and what does it mean to be bringing uh, a social science that was developed um largely in in places that you know were sort of like colonialist powers what does that mean um but at the same time obviously you know that that does have a lot to offer and and so i think thinking about culturally competent applications i um it was it was a real privilege to be able to be there and um and and yeah, I just, I felt so fortunate. Um, I really like look back on that and it absolutely has impacted the way that I think about the work that I do, particularly as a counseling psychologist, because we talk a lot about looking at culturally competent ways of thinking about therapy. Yes, I, I agree. In my, in my studies too, cultural competence is very, very important for psychologists like ourselves. And I think that you hit the nail on the head when you said there's so many westernized and American and Eurocentric theories out there, but not one size fits all, basically. And you brought your skills, your knowledge to Trinidad, but it sounds like you learned so much culturally um, from the people. And I loved what you said about there's two two people in the room, two experts in the room, because the motivational interviewing people are telling their story, they're telling their narrative. 
a little bit like narrative um, psychology, you know, a little bit like that too. You're so open. You were so open-minded and that's so great. It's refreshing to hear that. I think a lot of psychologists out there need to get out once COVID is over, <laughs> you know, need to go out to other countries and to learn about different cultures. But the best way to do that is to immerse yourself in the culture. And it sounds like you did that with uh, the arts and um, the food and the cuisine and the people. And that's pretty awesome. So thanks for, thanks so much for your work. That's pretty phenomenal. Are you working with any Trinidadians or Caribbean people now? So I do from time to time work with folks. I mean, not, um, it, it's, you know, it, it depends on, on who comes to see me. I guess that's one of the, the kind of interesting things about being in private practice is, you know, I suppose it's true with with anybody who works in in a service area. You know, part of the the interesting thing about it is you get to meet people based on kind of who walks through your door. Exactly. Um, yeah. So you know, people who are you know willing to let me in. You know, on occasion, sure that that that's definitely at times been folks from the Caribbean, and that's always a real um, a real pleasure because again my my own experiences hold such a warm spot in my heart and and have had such a powerful impact on my own training and yeah i mean it's it's always nice to get to work with somebody who frankly who kind of you know was raised in a culture that i so admire and i have to say it's also you know it's it's nice i am embarrassed to say this but especially in new york where we do have such yeah. a rich you know west indian population like you know folks from the west indies um and and you know from the caribbean um, but the number of people in the u.s who have no idea that trinidad is in the caribbean that trinidad and tobago are one country yes. it's um it's really amazing or who think that that Trinidad and Tobago are geographically located somewhere else. Yes, I agree. People don't know where it's located. Yes. So, yeah. So, you know, so I, I do feel like, uh, I feel honored that people, you know, see me and they know that I am not Caribbean myself, but they know that I am going to take, you know, an approach characterized by humility, and no matter where anybody is from. Um, yeah. And, and really kind of get to know them and, and get to know what their own experiences have been. Um, and certainly when, when folks come from Trinidad and Tobago, then it's exciting for me because I also, you know, I get to talk to them about something that was, was so powerful and impactful in my own life. So. Right. Yes. That's, that's so awesome. That's, I love that. So what are some tips you have, for people who are struggling at home right now, um, in general, um, things are trying are trying to get back to normal, um, but people are struggling with anxiety and depression and what have you. Do you have any advice or any tips to give people? You know, it's interesting. My my thinking on this has definitely evolved over the course of the pandemic, but in terms of thinking about tips for people who may be struggling with quarantine or or in some manner just with the way that life has changed in response to COVID early on I would talk a lot about you know how do we get creative like I would talk about why don't you know let's let's have a dinner party where I in fact I had a friend who did this 
Um, everybody makes the same kind of dish, but they do their own spin on it and then let's all eat it on Zoom together. But I think that folks are getting, or frankly already are, fatigued yeah. on Zoom. There's um, no doubt, basically. Yes, it can be really tiring. Yeah. You know, I, I think what's most important, whether it is, you know, a time when you feel you need to connect with someone socially, or if you feel you need to step away from your screen, just listen to what you're feeling you need. Uh, I, I I encourage people, I know it feels scary to be outside right now, but put a mask on and go take a walk. There's a lot of mental health benefits to that. Um, I agree, I agree. I'm also a really big fan of encouraging people to do discrete tasks, I suppose I would say. So here I am going to cooking again. You might get the sense over the course of this interview that I like food. Um, <laughs> But, um, you know, I, actually, one of the things that I've been doing during COVID in March, I started an organization with a friend of mine who's an opera singer to provide different mental health resources to people in the performing arts, because so many folks in the performing arts have lost their, yeah. um, you know, have lost all of their work um, for the foreseeable future. And hopefully, I knock on wood, um, it looks like in New York there's now a push to get folks in the performing arts vaccinated and, um, you know, get venues back up and running. But of course we kind of have to see, and albeit, you know, um, you know, lower uh, maximum audiences. So we have to see how sustainable that is, but hopefully this works. And um, anyway, so we recently had a chef who's a friend of mine on uh, from a restaurant up in uh, New Haven. And we were talking about the mental health benefits of cooking. He did a food demo for us. And then we were talking about, you know, the notion that you can set up to do a task, you plan it, you do it, and then you're done with it. It's a really rewarding feeling. Not to mention that when you're done with it, you, you know, if you're able, if you are living with somebody that you get to share a meal with them, um, that's such a loving gesture. Or even if you get to share it with yourself, it's a way of nurturing yourself, such a loving gesture. So yeah, yeah, yeah. find things that are nourishing um, for you right now. And I don't mean that just in a nutritional sense. Yeah. Um, you know, nourishing of your soul, nourishing of your mental health, I think it's really important. Um, so if it's, you know, reading or... Um, Maybe it's, maybe you're fatigued by Zoom, but you want to, lately I talk, I mean, I do a lot of my therapy sessions over video because I'm working remotely, but I, I talk to most of my friends on the phone because at the end of the day, we don't want to look at screens, but we want to hear each other's voices. Um, For sure. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. So I think it's about, you know, I, I do a lot of work in mindfulness. Um, a lot of my, my approach to therapy is a mindfully informed approach. Mindfulness also right now, yeah. any kind of practice can be really helpful but the kind of notion behind mindfulness is paying attention to what you're experiencing not just living life on autopilot but really noticing observing what you're experiencing and so I think the most valuable thing people can be doing for themselves right now is if you're 
feeling some discomfort, distress, something, pause and kind of take a moment and look inward and see what, what's going on for me here and what am I needing? What can I do that's a healthy way to address this feeling I'm having? And most importantly, if you're realizing that the feeling you're having is too big for you to take on individually, know that there are people like the two of us yeah. who are here to help and can, you know, there are therapists all over who um, are working. You don't even have to go into an office right now. Most of us are not going into offices right now. No, we're all working online. Most of us are working online. Yep. We're here to be partners to help you figure out what do you need during this time? How, exactly. how can you take care of yourself so you don't have to go it alone? Yes, I totally agree with all of that. Mindfulness is so big and the loneliness factor is huge. I really agree in, in seeing a psychologist, a therapist, because you're going to get the support. Someone who, is, who went to school for so many years and someone like you who went out of, their, uh, out of their country to go do work and then it was just such an enriching experience. So when people are suffering during this time, it's so important to have someone come alongside like a professional like you, like me, um, to help them, help them cope, help them cope with life right now. In, in general. So thank you for that. Um, what's next for you? Well, hopefully we're, we're I mean, at, at least, you know, again, knock on wood, it's looking like we're moving in the direction of, uh, of getting out of this thing. <laughs> like that, there's some hope. <laughs> there really is. Hope is a big thing. You know, I like to say that I'm a hope dealer. <laughs> I love that. I love that. <laughs> you know, I want to help, help people have hope about the future. Because right now, you know, this, whole, this past year, just people have lost hope in many different uh, aspects. People have, to keep it real, people have lost jobs, income, family members, that sort of thing. So I do believe in hope. And I believe that there are people out there. I believe in humanity to help, uh, to help others and to come out of this thing, you know? This is history. This is history that we're living in and that we're a part of. And mental health is huge, right? And it's and people are gonna look back at this time as what did you guys do? You know, what did you, what did you do to cope? You know, how did you help people? It's interesting that you're saying that because you know, another thing I've been saying to people is because you're living through history, one thing that you can do that can help to go back to narrative therapy, which you were talking about before, yeah. to help make meaning from this time is write it down. I actually, this may be a somewhat macabre reference, but I've been talking with people a lot about the diary of Anne Frank. Yeah. Um, that, you know, here you had a young girl who was faced with having to think about her own mortality, having to contend with being in hiding because of hatred that she was facing solely on the basis of her faith. And in the face of that, she did something, she didn't, of course, didn't know what her diary was going to go on to mean right. to so many generations. But in the face of 
what could have been real helplessness. She wrote. And I think that there's a real lesson in that for all of us right now. Um, it might feel like the experience you're having is mundane or like it's similar to the experience that everybody else is having. But one way of making meaning of things is by documenting because you are a part of history right now. And that can sometimes help us make sense of things and give stuff that really doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It can make it feel like oh, this has a purpose in the grander scheme of things. There's a, there's a way of understanding that I'm, I'm going through this and I'm going to come out stronger and I'm going to come out more resilient. And, and here's a way of making sense of this right now, of giving this purpose right now. I love that. I love that. Documenting, writing things down. It's so important. I always say, even though we're a high tech world, that paper is power. When you write things down, it's power. It's powerful. You don't know what, like, like you said, Anne Frank's diary, it just influenced so, like, influenced so many people, taught people so many things, you know, and this is the time to write. I, I do um, ask a lot of my clients and patients to journal, even though they don't like it. <laughs> I do, but if they don't like it, then I won't force it on them. But I do, um, because it also helps alleviate pain and um, symptoms of anxiety and depression and what have you, but it's also documented. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're going to, their grandkids or, or family can look back and read, wow, they went through this, you know? Absolutely, absolutely. And I think for those that that might be hard for, just write 10, literally put a timer on. It doesn't matter if you stop mid-sentence, write 10 minutes a day. Yeah. It doesn't have to have any, you know, we're talking about like a document that, that could go on to be, you know, a huge part of history, but you, it doesn't have to be, um, you don't, you don't have to think of it as though you're writing your autobiography. It's right. just the purpose of getting stuff off your chest. I think it can be so helpful, especially right now. Absolutely. Yeah. And they can mindfully write mindfully write about what they're experiencing um, in their body and their sensations and being in the presence and all of that is just so great. Um, what do you want people to remember you by, let's say, 30 years from now, 40 years from now? What kind of legacy do you want, do you want to leave back? Oh boy. I have to say, if some of my patients saw my reaction to this right now, they would be laughing because one of the questions, there's a kind of therapy called acceptance and commitment therapy or ACT, I'm sure. Yeah, I, that's my, I love ACT. One of, one of the, the questions that I, I often use, I use a lot in groups actually, is I'll say to people, um, you can tell I can, be, I can be a little bit dark, um, but I always use the eulogy one. So like when you die, yes. You want people to eulogize you because it does it theoretically it should help people make sense yep. of what they want to strive to be and you know and yet here i am uh, getting asked the same question and i don't know if you ask your, your patients <laughs> what do i want how do i want people to remember me The answer that is sort of immediately coming to mind is 
my hope with the work that I do is that people will that people will remember me by way of remembering that I played some role in helping them achieve a version of themselves that they can be proud of. I love that. I, I love that. that. Yeah. Yeah. You took the focus off of you, but, but it's because the impact you want is I want to be able to help others cope. And that's what you want people to remember you by. That's awesome. I love the eulogy um, practice, even more darker. I do ask people, and this is, this is a cultural thing too, if, if you believe in, in this, um, some people get cremated or what have you, but what would you want to have written on your tombstone? That's a, an exercise I do too with uh, people, you know? So, but I love the eulogy one, that's so powerful. I want to thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for your great work and your cultural competency. Not that just because you went to Trinidad, oh, you're culturally, you know, no, that's not what I'm saying. Definitely. We're all a work in progress. We're all always learning culturally and what have you. I think, you know what, this is kind of the best time for people to learn about other, other cultures um, if they're home and they're doing other things. Um, that could be one of the things that they can do learn about other people you know people doing that a lot now you know talking yeah. about kind of like doing the doing the work so yeah. to speak certainly in the states we we happen to find ourselves in a moment where i think i'm really reluctant to talk about silver linings of this pandemic because i i hate the notion that half a million people in in my country had to die to get to this place but i think mm -hmm. one of the things i hope is that people in in response to the Black Lives Matter movement uh, have have been moving towards a place where they're becoming more aware of the experiences that other people have, um, and and so you see people talking about kind of doing the work, quote unquote, and and I hope that people are doing that. I, I think that that's maybe maybe we come out of this with some more humility. I totally agree. Thank you so much for bringing that up to um, Black Lives Matter. I always, you know, people um, don't, some people don't realize that this has been going on for, for years and years and decades and decades. And it's just that I really, I, I agree with you. It's because we're focused now, more focused than ever before. That's why people are more aware now. And because of technology, we have cameras right on our phones, like that, that we can just take anywhere with us but I think people are more focused and they're aware because of um, the pandemic. They're home and they're being awoken basically. Mm -hmm. I think um, a lot of uh, humility, like you said, um, comes to play and a lot of people have taken the focus off themselves like, like what you just said and they're focusing on others, you know? Um, and I, yeah, it's really tough for us to talk about silver linings during this because of the tragedies that we've experienced. Um, but it's real. Thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate you. Thank you for your work.
It's my pleasure. And thank you for having me. And thank you for your work. What you're doing is so important. Well, thank you. Thanks so much. Um, anything to help uh, people during this time um, to cope um, is what I want to do. And um, yeah, I really appreciate you so much. You took the time of your very busy schedule to, to be here. So thank you so much. And hopefully we'll get to talk again or meet up for coffee or something one of these days. Yes. All right. Thank you, everyone. Um, my, my name is Dr. Trish Ramprasad, the core behavioral therapist. And you just heard from Dr. Alexandra Straightener. Bye, guys. <laughs>